Hello and welcome to this BMJ Medical Humanities Journal podcast. I'm Angela Woods, Associate Editor of the Journal and Co-Editor of the Critical Medical Humanities Special Issue. Today we're going to talk about one of the papers in that collection, which is about the way in which positive psychology is being used within government employment programs. At first glance, expanding the focus of unemployment initiative to include people's attitudes, behaviours and well-being might seem like a good thing, a way of recognising that looking for work can be demoralising as well as difficult, and that there might be a role for the government in helping us to stay positive. But is this always the case? Is there another story to tell about the way positive psychology is itself being put to work in ways which might be deeply damaging? To answer some of these questions, I'm joined in the studio by two guests who are both authors of an article published in the Medical Humanities Journal and linked to this podcast. I wonder, Lynn and Robert, if you could tell the listeners a bit about yourselves. I'm Lynn Friedley. I'm a researcher with a special interest in mental health. I'm part of Hubbub, a research collaboration that's funded by The Welcome that's exploring rest and its opposites. And I'm Robert Stern. I'm a PhD student in English and Humanities at Birkbeck, where my research is in the historical concept of skill. And we're both also members of Boycott Workfare, which is an organisation campaigning to end all forms of work for your benefit schemes. Fabulous, thank you. Your article in the Medical Humanities Journal looks at the role of psychology in UK government workfare programmes, and in particular the role of positive affect. So what is workfare exactly? Workfare is the name for a few different kinds of work for your benefit schemes that were pioneered in the US in the 1980s and have since spread around the world. So in the UK, unemployed people are forced to do unpaid work for a charity, business or a local authority in order to continue to be eligible for benefits. And this applies to both job seekers allowance and employment and support allowance, which is the benefit paid to sick and disabled people. Workfare is coercive because failure to take part in these schemes can result in benefit sanctions. This is where social security payments are stopped for at least four weeks and up to three years. Uh, Tens of thousands of people are sanctioned each month. Workfare also includes mandatory coaching, skills building and motivational workshops, as well as schemes that are part training course, part unpaid work placement. Referral to these schemes is routine um, once a claimant fulfills certain criteria or has been unemployed for a certain length of time. So what we're talking about today applies to hundreds of thousands of people every year. And what does positive affect mean in the context of workfare? Well, affect is feeling or emotion. So what's happening to people claiming benefits is being required to demonstrate a positive attitude to work, an approved mindset, so achieving a mindset that will appeal to employers, as one cause for job seekers puts it. So I guess what we're seeing is that employability is less about attributes and skills for a specific job or job offer, receptionist, care worker, and um, more about are you confident, aspirational, motivated, optimistic, a kind of generically upbeat person. So in the job centre, in in the growing welfare-to-work industry, there's this relentless focus on positive thinking, challenging negative perceptions and self-esteem. It's a sort of mandatory cheerfulness as a solution to the UK's low-pay, no-pay economy and the precarious labour market. This also means that curing unemployment is becoming a growth market for psychology. So how do you see positive affect and this this emphasis on cheeriness that you've just outlined functioning as a coercive strategy? 
Um, in a few ways. Uh, so building on what Lynn's just said, we see this in the content of the courses the claimants are sent on, which promote a particular model of unemployment and demand the claimants are sent to it. They redefine unemployment as a psychological disorder or deficit. Uh, second, we see positive affect functioning as a coercive strategy in the way that the route out of unemployment is held to be a claimant's positive mindset. The idea that what they need most of all is the capacity to display motivation. And this is the message of unsolicited emails sent to claimants, which are supposed to instill positive affect, um, of courses with titles like Engage or Focus the Mind or Realise Your Potential. And thirdly, we see positive affect functioning as a coercive strategy because the maintenance of positive affect becomes a factor in applying sanctions and other penalties like like workfare. And this, this is what we call psychological conditionality, where claimants are required to be, think and feel a certain way as well as do certain activities. If they don't, then they're seen to fail to meet the conditions that make them eligible for benefits in the first place. So there's a huge pressure on people to perform and appear in a certain way in order to be able to receive benefits still. Certainly. And it's worth emphasising this point, I think, that these these interventions, these sort of psychological forms of policy, occur in job centres and the premises of private providers which are intentionally pressurised at locations that are characterised by massive inequalities in power. And are, are highly stressful places, I imagine, for people as well. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, it's significant, I think, that, that like the psychological benefits of work are being strongly promoted exactly at a time when, for many people, work is less and less able to provide either emotional satisfaction or an income that you can actually live on. And, of course, there's been a huge growth in unpaid work of all kinds, this long period of waiting for a wage. So employers are expecting people to be grateful just for the experience of work, detached from any notion that work should provide you an income you can live on. And psychological value, all this, you know, work gives you motivation and confidence and self-esteem, um, is used to justify the lack of a wage. So whistle while you work for nothing. Mm-hmm. With so much at stake then in this in this set of issues, was it difficult to find people who were willing to discuss their experiences of psychological coercion with you? The problem is not that people are unwilling to share their experiences or that the testimony that's recorded is difficult to access. Rather, the problem is a lack of action in response to this testimony from professionals in relevant positions of power. And people have shared the testimony on social media about the coercive and punitive aspects of these schemes. And this body of experience is widely disseminated. It's been taken up by activist groups, particularly disability groups like Disabled People Against Cuts and Black Triangle. And mental health groups especially have mobilised around it. Many organisations, in fact, have pulled out of workfare and condemned it in response to the demands that have arisen from these shared experiences. So how have psychologists responded to some of these concerns and to the concerns you raise in the paper? Psychologists have certainly raised concerns about welfare reform. So, for example, Psychologists Against Austerity have campaigned very vociferously and there have been protests by individual psychologists, but there's been no formal response from the main professional bodies, for example, the British Psychological Society or the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy. They have not responded. And we think this is a serious issue for the psychology profession and it's astonishing that there's been as yet no formal response and that the protest is confined to individual psychologists' social media inputs, letters to the editor and that kind of thing. 
So positive affect as coercive strategy appears in a special issue of Medical Humanities on the critical medical humanities. What key ideas would you like scholars and practitioners in this field to take from your work? We think a critical medical humanities might look at how ideas and methods taken from and legitimated by psychology are actually playing out in a social setting, even if the ideas appear in a warped and distorted form. So we would say that psychology still ought to interrogate the ethical and political questions that arise from this use. There ought to be more thinking about to what extent psychologists are responsible for the vulgarised and damaging use of psychological discourse and about how psychologists might use their professional power to intervene in the way that's being used. In addition, it's important to recognise that psychology as a whole is being used in these sort of socially and scientifically dubious ways to coerce and manipulate hundreds of thousands of people, as as Robert mentioned, who are claiming benefits, and psychology is being used to support the delivery of workfare. And so, for us, the critical medical humanities can raise crucial questions about the consequences of that use, both for individuals, but I think also for the wider debate about welfare. And Fundamentally, we hope that critical medical humanities can call the profession to account. Most of all, we hope that people will join forces with the various movements that are campaigning to abolish workfare. In the wake of the UK general election then, if those are the the key things that you'd like scholars and practitioners in medical humanities to take forward, what other issues around psychological coercion do you think will need to be addressed? There are two particularly grave concerns at the moment. One is the proposal to put psychologists in job centres and that raises issues, all the issues around imbalance of power and potential coercion and and co-opting medical professionals to deliver um, government policy. Um, The second is the proposal that claimants who refuse a recommended treatment may have their benefits cut and both of those concerns are very serious and do require a response from professionals. Lynn and Robert's paper is available to read on the BMJ Medical Humanities website. It's already stimulating lively discussion, particularly now that we have a majority Conservative government, and doubtless it will continue to do so. I'm sure I'm not alone in looking forward to hearing how their work as scholars and activists unfolds and how these issues that they've outlined are tackled in the future. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today and thanks to you, the listener, for accessing this podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time. But for now, goodbye.